0: chapter 12 this morning, if you don't have a Bible, then you can follow this text. There should be an insert in your bulletin, and uh, we've had to just do that a lot more lately. Revelation is a big book, and we're in November, and we're not even, uh, well, we're just right over the halfway mark, so there's a lot going on. So uh, forgive us for having to throw a little bit more paper at you, but Revelation 12, you can follow that there in the... uh, In the insert, and uh, or look on with someone. And if you are visiting, we are about halfway through a series on the last book of the Bible, Revelation. We're just making our way through it. And in chapter twelve, this morning, let me just say this, and then I'm going to read this text. If if you have ever wondered why is the Christian life so hard? When I was told on the front end about all this abundant life I would have and all this joy I would have, uh, joy inexpressible that I would have, why does it seem so hard? Why do I feel so beat up? Uh, This text is for you. And before I read it, I I, I want to remind you of the context. Revelation was first given to seven local churches. And these seven local churches are not living in a world where Christianity is even a large minority. They are vastly outnumbered. And uh, depending on when you date the book of Revelation, they're almost certainly looking at increasing persecution, even martyrdom in a Roman-dominated world. This is to help them. They are seeing a vision that is helping them understand their lives. And through them, we're getting a vision of something that, as a local church, is supposed to help our lives. Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God And to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle. "...so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman." and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, as as we have felt uh, through this series, there's so much that we're encountering in these texts, these apocalyptic texts that is so foreign to us. Uh, the imagery and the meaning and how we're to make a bridge from what you were saying to these churches in the first century to what you're saying to uh, not only our local church but even us as individuals. So please help us, Lord. And we, w- we want to pray just even right now as other sermons begin all over this city, even through our downtown. Uh, help those who break the bread of life to those listening, and help those listening. Help those who know you. Help those who do not yet know you. And we ask that for ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a book that came out recently uh, entitled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I haven't read the whole book, but I've kind of perused it. It came out, it came out I believe, this year uh, by a woman, uh, last name Butterfield. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, and uh, she was converted out of a, a life way, way entrenched in academia. And uh, she says about herself, I was not looking for God, believe me. She, uh, she came out at the age of 28 as a lesbian. By the age of 28, she was a teaching assistant um, in a formidable university. She had um, secured her Ph.D. in English Lit and, um, and Culture. By the age of 30, 36, she was a tenured professor, she says, at I don't know which school, but at one of the oldest and most respected women's studies programs in the United States. She uh, lived with her partner in a very influential letter school. She was being recruited by other schools to help them ...and sort of advancing certain certain ideologies. And she said, right when everything was going great for me... ...I mean, I was a rising star in my academic circles. I was converted. And the way she was converted was... was, uh, she, ...she was doing research on the religious right. And it was an extremely critical book about the religious right. And so in her research, she contacted a pastor... And it was through a relationship with this pastor that she became a Christian. Not wanting to become a Christian, she became a Christian. Now, you're kind of thinking when you hear this man, all right, you, you were not operating from what we would call a you know, sort of Sunday schoolish, churchy kind of beginning. And uh, you say that you weren't looking for God, but this must be the part in the story where you talk about, but then it got so great. And that, okay, on the one hand, she does talk about what she found in Christ, but she's also honest about, my life was upended. She said that um, when when I sort of, you know, she had come out as a lesbian in her late 20s, but when she came out in her mid-30s through a lecture publicly as a Christian, she said, that day I lost my community. Um, And she goes on to say, God gave me a new one. But that one I had, I loved, and I lost it. And she said, You know, to this day, when I hear Christians talk about praying for the lost and wanting them to become Christians, she says, I, Do we realize what we're asking God to do in people's lives? Because my experience was it brought utter chaos into my life. And that's what, and we're praying for God to do that in their lives. And she describes the chaos wasn't just that my own internal life was now having to be brought under the light of the Word of God and everything exposed and just rewiring, reorienting how I think about life and work and love and women and men and culture. Everything was changing. But besides the fact that that was going on inside of me, there was this really... um, I had a friend of mine that listens to my podcast, and he said, you, you use the phrase felt sense too much, but I'm going to use it. Uh, you know, she had a felt sense that, that uh, there was this pushback from the outside. And, and not just in the circles, you know, that had been her community where she was now dubbed a, a turncoat. Turncoat and traitor. But that something was pushing back. Not only all this chaos inside, but almost chaos coming from the outside. Now, we could give all kinds of of versions of that and how that plays out, but Revelation 12 is a picture of the big war. The big war for the Christian. And and this could sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but you have to say both sides of this to be biblical. When when God saves a person, and I love that she says, I was not seeking Him. He, He found me. And it totally blindsided me. And I love that because that, that sounds like the New Testament to me. On the one hand, He gave me a new community. He gave, he, he gave me who I really am. I didn't suppress who I really am. I became who I really am. But on the other hand, I bumped into hostility and pushback and chaos that I, I had not bargained on. When When Christ saves a person... He gives them joy. When Christ saves a person, he gives you abundant life. But when Christ saves a person, you enter a war. Whether you want to or not, you enter a war. It's, it's the Great War, it's the war that predates all the wars. This is a vision of the Great War in Revelation. I want to look at three things about this. Um, first off, the combatants, second, the history of the war. And then third, the weapons of the war. Alright, the combatants and the history and the weapons. All right? First off, who, who were the combatants in the war? And this sounds obvious, but in some ways it's not. You have a vision. This is vintage revelation here. It takes place in heaven. It doesn't begin on earth. The vision begins in heaven. It's a vision of a dragon and a woman and a child. And who are they? All right, first off, the dragon. That one is easy to identify. Look in verse 9. In fact, this is one of the rare times where John cuts us some slack and says, okay, now the meaning of this image is, I mean, we kind of wish he did that all the time. But he he gives us a little mercy in verse 9. He says, "Uh, The great dragon was thrown down, i.e., that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Okay, so that one we know. The dragon is the image of the devil. Now, we can't unpack all of this, but as you look at the whole of God's word, what it says about the devil, first off, it presents him as someone who is not mythic, who is somebody who is actually a real, living, thinking being. He has, if I can put it this way, he has ontological existence. He's not an idea, he's not an embodiment of evil. Jesus Christ considered him to be a rational being. He's a creature, which means he's not the opposite of God. That would be dualism. The biblical worldview is not that there's a God and an equally powerful anti-God. It's not like the force with the light side and the dark side. There's God, the creator, and everything and everyone else is a creature, including Satan. Powerful angel... Extremely powerful angel, had his start in heaven, very powerful. You know, we've looked at things like heads and horns and the number 7 and the number 10. Might, power, big power, big might. But he's limited. That's the dragon. Uh, Let me me do the child next. Who is the child? Now, let's look at this because you get just enough clues to identify him. Verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. woman gives birth to a male child. And this thing about ruling the nations with a rod of iron, and that is an explicit reference to Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is one of the most frequently cited Old Testament passages in the New Testament. And it is always applied as being fulfilled in whom? Jesus Christ. It's a psalm about God speaking to His Son, who's a king, and giving Him the inheritance of the nations. But the other clue is this. It says that the child was snatched up from, you know, where the dragon has access to Him, and He snatched up to heaven to God's throne. Not just to the heavenly courtroom... But sitting on God's throne, in Revelation, there are only two figures that we've seen on the throne, not just around it, in front, you know, in front of it, flanking it, on the throne have been God, or we might say God the Father, but also there was one other figure that you find in the middle of the throne, and it's the Lamb. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The child is Jesus Christ. So who's the woman? Now, you know, the the kind of inclination would be to say, well, Jesus' mom was Mary, so I guess it represents Mary. But look at verse 1 again. Look at the imagery. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Where else do you find that bundle of images? Not the literal sun, moon, stars, but as, a, as, a, as an image, the sun, the moon, and 12 stars together. Where you find that image is way back in Genesis when Joseph, and this is not Jesus' earthly daddy, Joseph. This is Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Israel. Joseph had a dream. And he had a dream that the sun and the moon, and eleven stars came and bowed down to him. And apparently Joseph in his youth lacked discretion because he told his family what he dreamed. Well, the family automatically interpreted it and they knew what it meant. The moon was his mom, and the stars were his brothers, but the sun was his dad, Jacob, Israel, when you look at that image of a woman, she's, she's clothed in the sun, the moon under her feet, the, the stars around her head. That is a picture. It's, it's an embodiment of the people of God. She's, she's Understand, not all the people of the earth, not all the human beings made by God. She's the people of God. She's Israel. She's the people of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the devil is trying to kill the child, and the devil's trying to kill her. Those are the combatants. What's the history of this thing, the history of the war? Look in verse 7. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. By the way, Michael is named several times in Scripture. He's a powerful archangel. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, you don't get a lot of detail about this in the Bible, but this is one of those little clues about something that predates the beginning of the Bible. We don't know how this happened, and I can't explain it, but somehow a very powerful angel, and where this impulse came from, we can't say. Despite everything he could see and everything he knew, he rebelled against God and took an entire group of angels with him. There was war in heaven, and he and his followers were cast out. Now, note what it says in verse 12, because it shows you... I don't want to say it's, it's, it's not amusing, but it's an interesting take on it, because it's saying, hey, great news for heaven. Hey, but if you live on earth, not so much. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. You know, one of mine uh, mine and Dana's favorite old movies, and it was a favorite old movie, uh, movie of my dad, is this old Humphrey Bogart movie, Casablanca. And there's this famous scene. This is just vintage old black and white movie kind of scene where... Um, Humphrey Bogart's sitting at, at, at the bar that he owns. This is Rick's Cafe. And he's had too much to drink. And he has seen Elsa, this woman that he was just madly in love with, had gone a long time without seeing, and he's seen her again. He's been drinking too much. And there's this scene where he slams his fist on the bar and he says, of all the gin joints in all the towns, in all the world, she walked into mine. And in a sense, the church could say... Of all the planets, in all the galaxies, in all the universe, He lands on ours. Because everything went downhill from there. Uh, Verse 9. Listen to what John just gave us, a little little, uh, little history here. He says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. He uses the terms dragon and serpent. As synonyms for each other But the first time he says serpent He says he's that ancient serpent Now what is that pointing to? And that is taking us all the way back to Genesis In the Garden of Eden Where when the devil shows up He's not named as the devil But he's first introduced as what? The serpent And what is he doing? He's deceiving You can connect the dots directly from that To this text Well Where does it go from there? When he deceives Adam and Eve, God does not curse Adam. He curses the ground because of Adam. And Adam sure feels the curse. And Eve feels the curse. But he curses the serpent. And one of those things that he says, and the echoes of this just go through the whole universe, they sure go through the whole Bible. He says that from now on, there's going to be enmity, hostility, i.e., war, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed look in verse 17 it says the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her and this translation reads offspring in greek it says on her seed the fulfillment of the very thing that god said was going to happen and the scriptures are really clear about this he is furious now, what are we supposed to do with this? All right, first off, again, who are the original recipients? It's these local churches looking at going through some extremely hard times and being exhorted by Jesus. You've got to overcome. You know, you might die a natural death and you might dodge the bullet, but you know what? You might get tortured, you might get martyred, and you've got to endure and overcome this revealing of Jesus. And these visions is not to confuse them, it's to help them. Now, how is this helpful to them? Well, one thing He's showing them is this. Look, when you were baptized, you were publicly brought into a body called the church. When you came into this thing called the church, the people of God, you entered a hostility that is way older than Rome. And you need to know that, because this is your life. But we could say that about ourselves... I mean, let's just say it starkly. If you are in Christ, if you are in His church, you are in the war. And you, again, it sounds weird to say it. It sounds weird to say it in the 21st century. But if this isn't true, the Bible's not reliable. If you don't think about the devil, believe me, if you're in Christ, he thinks about you. He thinks about your progress or your regress. And he thinks about it shrewdly. He is a phenomenal theologian and psychologist. Well, part of understanding that can actually help us. Now, I want you to think about this. Christians get so mad at each other. Can we say that? Christians get mad at each other all the time. And it can be over big, massive social issues or big theological concerns, or it could be that somebody said the wrong thing at community group or somebody hurt someone's feelings about something in the nursery. And we get completely crossways. And it can start to feel, by the way, this happens in Christian marriage too, where it can start to feel like, you're my enemy. You know, you're my enemy. One of the best things to knit our hearts together is to say, yeah, we can disagree. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot about spiritual warfare, but he also disagreed with people. Yeah, you can disagree with people. But to say, look, our enemy is not each other. Fellow followers of Jesus Christ are not the enemy. Paul said, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against these powers of darkness, these forces of evil. Uh, A book that that was in my dad's stuff, um, this is a book about the Civil War, and there's a gazillion books about the Civil War, but one reason this was interesting to us is because my great-great-grandfather is mentioned a few times in this book. Henry Habig is mentioned in this book. He's a blacksmith in this guy's unit that wrote this book. It's his journal. And he talks about when they went through a horrible battle together. I won't go through all the history, but he says he looks... After the battle stops, he looks around. He says, there lay the trees cut down by bullets, the bloody ditch, the many dead and wounded. Many were crying for water, some begging to have the dead taken off them. I don't expect to go to hell, but if I do, I'm sure that hell can't beat that terrible scene. They take their weapons, they clear out, and then here's what he says. We halted in a pasture and broke ranks. Then came the reaction. All moved by the same impulse, we sat down on the wet ground and wept not silently, but vociferously, and long, officers and men together. Some of the boys had been at outs with one another. They made friends and deplored the times that they had ever held an unkind thought against one so true and brave. Two fellows, both named Bill, who never could get along, rushed into each other's arms, begging forgiveness and swearing undying friendship. Why did they do that? Because they just came off the starkest reminder you're not the enemy. That was the enemy. And that was horrible. We're brothers. And there's something extremely clarifying about understanding. Look, we might disagree. We might get crosswise, crossways, and we've got to work through that, but and we've got the resources to work through that, but you're not the enemy. The devil and his minions and the ways that he works in our culture, that's the enemy. Now, that leads to the question of what are the weapons? Let me be brief here. Uh, I, Satan has more weapons than, than are described here, but these are, these are biggies in the arsenal. First off, verse 9. Again, here's, he's introduced to us the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. By the way, Satan means adversary, his name means I'm against the people of God. The deceiver of the whole world. And one of the main, main weapons, tactics of the devil from the beginning is deceit. Now, the tricky thing is this. And I've asked this question often, but I, I, I just I can't help but ask it again. If you are deceived, do you know it? No. No. By the nature of it, when you're deceived, you think that you're thinking clearly. And what Satan is so masterful at is taking his knowledge of God and his ways and what he has said, even in the Scriptures, and taking them... And typically, he doesn't make a frontal assault and come at you through the front. You know, Satan doesn't ride in on a Harley in black and say, you know what you really need to do is worship me. kind of wild-eyed... What it probably looks like is this. And I, this is an example. And I'm, I'm sort of uh, paraphrasing the screw tape letters. It probably looks more like this in our setting. You know what? That thing that you talk about, um, that thing that you're being taught, that Jesus is king of heaven and earth, that is true. He is king of heaven and earth. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And it is the work of God's people to go out and to show in all the different ways that Jesus is king, to show that to their next-door neighbors, to show that to the ends of the earth. And you know what? You need to show that on your street. You need to show that to the person in the apartment next to you. You need to show the love of Christ to that person. It's extremely important. In fact, it's so important that if I were you, I would not do it today. I would have a good supper and I would get a good night's rest and hit it fresh in the morning. And if you string enough of those together, you've been duped. It probably looks more like that in our setting. It's not out-and-out lie. It's taking enough of the truth to make us feel like, "Uh uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. And then one little twist at the end. That's his weapon. The other is this. He accuses us. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And if He's called the accuser of our brothers, and you see Him doing this elsewhere in the Bible, that must mean he, that's one of His big tactics. What does that look like? I mean, have you ever heard this thing that um, sometimes... Spouses who have been physically abused begin to think that it's their fault. In fact, that's common. If you haven't experienced it, you go, how in the world could that be? But see, some of that, just at a human level, is showing you the power of when someone continues to accuse you, that you begin to believe it. See, and the great thing about, from Satan's point of view, not ours, about knowing people is he's running all these evidence files that are accurate. So he's able to come and say, Oh, so, so you're going to show the love of Christ to your next-door neighbor when you yelled at so-and-so. I, I don't think those match up. You're probably not the person to show the love of Christ to anyone. Or oh, This is a classic. Oh, so you're going you're to march into downtown Pres this morning and sing your songs and look like you believe it, when we both know you don't. Devastating. Now, those are the satanic weapons. What are the weapons of the people of God? Now, this, I hope, is extremely encouraging. Because it... (laughs) Shocker. They take us back to Jesus. But let's look at what do you do with deceit and what do you do with accusation? What's our weapon against His... his, Let's... Take it uh, in different order. Against his accusations, what does it say in verse 11? The people of God have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Not by getting a seat at the table in Rome, but by the blood of Jesus and the word of their testimony. What does that mean? When Satan comes at you and accuses you, what is the only weapon that works? When I was thinking about this, I thought of my favorite movie scene so far of 2012. Admittedly, I haven't been to a lot of movies. but well, If not seen, then dialogue. It's from the Avengers. And it's this scene where Tony Stark, i.e. Iron Man, has squared off with Loki. And Loki is the bad guy in the Avengers. He's the brother of Thor, wants to rule the universe and all that. And they're, just, they're in this condo, and they're kind of politely trash-talking each other. And Tony Stark's pouring a drink as he's having this, you know, back and forth with Loki. And uh, finally Loki says, kind of like, let's let's just get cut to the chase here. He says, I have an army. And remember what Tony Stark said? We have a Hulk. (laughs) And and not, in in no way, to be irreverent or to belittle this. And by the way, does that end up being foreshadowing in that movie? But, not to be irreverent or to make light, but It is the church's privilege when the accuser comes and says, How can you call yourself a Christian when you... How can you think you're going to heaven when you... And whatever predicate of that sentence is probably accurate. We are free to say, We have a lamb. So what you got in that file? Because... uh, I could add a lot of things that you didn't add to that file. I'm not happy about them. I'm ashamed of them. But we have a lamb. The lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. I'm thinking if he takes away the sins of the world, it covers the file. That's the weapon against the accusations. What about the deceit? Verse 11. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Verse 17. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the note I want to leave us on. If sometimes you wonder, am I right to bank my life on all this stuff? Am I an idiot to drive to a big room and talk about someone that we can't see? I mean, I think all of us have to ask that question. But this is why the word testimony is so huge to John. John is the guy who wants to grab you by the lapel and say, I saw him. I ate with him. My eyes saw him. My ears heard him. And if you kind of try to walk off, he goes, no, really, I'm serious. I can testify that I saw him. And I wrote these things down during the lifetime of these eyewitnesses. And these other apostles wrote these things down during the lifetime of these eyewitnesses. Why? So that you'll know he did what he did. And the truthfulness that he said what he said. And you know what? That means if we're going to have the weapons that we need against this devil and his forces that hate the believer and that hate the local church, Here's what's going to have to happen. We have got to immerse ourselves in the testimony. And I say this as guilt trip free as I can. I'm actually saying it in an encouraging way. That means that if there's something in you that's saying, "Uh, I, I think I'm going to sleep in and not go to worship. Go worship. Worship and sing the testimony. And hear the testimony. And get together with others and remind yourselves of the testimony. And read the testimony. And learn the testimony. And exposes lies. He calls us into war. The beautiful thing is Revelation tells us what? The war ends. If you're in Christ, you're in war. If you're in Christ, the war will cease. And you'll live in a peaceful new heavens and new earth forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, strange to, to come together and to talk about uh, a devil and demons, someone in the form of a dragon, someone trying to eat, eat the Messiah, attack the people of God, and there's still so much here. We're trying to get our minds around. But, oh, Lord, help us to live here and to know that there will be pushback. There will be hostility. You told us there would be. But we have the blood of Jesus. We have the testimony of Jesus. It is terrifying to the devil. Please put this deep in our hearts. Help us to help one another remember the blood of Jesus and the testimony. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.